before I read the text for this evening, let me just take a second and ask you, uh, are you warm? How many are warm? It's pretty warm in here, isn't it? Now, it's cold outside, but it's roasting in here. It's like a sauna up here in the pulpit. Is there anything you can do about that, Dan? I'll bet there is. That's good. So we'll cool the place down, and then if you get cold, uh, too bad. Well, we're rushing right along through our study of Romans, and tonight uh, we're going to be very ambitious uh, with the text and uh, select a rather lengthy passage. I'm going to be reading from chapter 11, verse 36. So I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is a word about God from God that we may be instructed in our understanding of His being, and of His glory. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we have heard the words of the Apostles' doxology in our previous gathering, and now we listen to the conclusion of the doctrinal portion of this His magnum opus, and we pray, Father, that You would give us at least a glimpse into the fullness of Your excellency that is communicated by these words. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday evening, I mentioned an exposition on this verse that was rendered by uh, Dr. Steve Lawson at the Ligonier's Pastors Conference this year, and I suggested to you that if you could possibly do it to download it from the internet, because in my judgment it was the finest exposition of this text I had ever heard. So let me put you to the test. How many of you did that? Let's see. Let's see those hands. I want to see the hands of the elect. Get them up there. <laughs> Come on, Camp Easy. I know you did it because you told me that there's no way I could even begin to come. I think that's why our group is down this evening. Every, the rest of the people downloaded that and they said, well, why bother listening to what R.C. Has, has to say about it? But did I exaggerate? Wasn't it magnificent, those of you who had the opportunity to see it? Thank you. It really was. All right. This is the end, as I said, of Paul's treatment of the doctrines of grace, beginning in chapter 1 with the announcement of the gospel of God and of justification by faith alone. And we saw then how the apostle turned our attention to 
the universal exposure of the human race to the wrath of God for repressing God's revelation of Himself and how this led to manifold other sins in the radical corruption of the race, which included the sins both of the Jew and of the Greek. And then in chapter 3, Paul brought the whole of mankind before the tribunal of God, saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what followed from then was the exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, followed then by a treatment of sanctification, our growth in Christ after we are justified, followed then by a magnificent statement of the providence of God over all things, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, the introduction in the golden chain of the doctrine of election, which he expounded in great detail in chapter 9 of this epistle. Then chapter 10 talked about the great missionary enterprise of the church, uh, that we should be sending people to all the world, that the gospel may be preached to all people. And then, of course, in this chapter, chapter 11, we've seen his uh, profound treatment of the place of ethnic Israel in the future of God's redemption. All of that now was brought to a close in the doxology that we examined last week in verse 33, of the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. And so tonight we come to the last verse of chapter 11, which is the last verse of Paul's unfolding of the gospel of God. He concludes this section of his epistle with these words, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. There is in this single verse the sum and substance of the whole biblical revelation of the being and character of God. Paul sets it forth with the succinct use of three prepositions, which prepositions are virtually loaded with significance. That he says of God, for of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time tonight looking at those three prepositions and what they teach us about the nature of God. We can say by way of introduction that in summary, the apostle, by using these prepositions, is saying that God is the source and owner of everything that is. Second, He is the ultimate cause of everything that comes to pass, which comes to pass by means of the exercise of His sovereign will, and that God is not only the means of all things, but that He is the end or the purpose of all things. So all things begin with God are governed by God, 
are used by God for the purpose of glorifying God. Now, first let's look at the preposition that all things are of Him. The word here in the Greek is a simple preposition that can be interpreted or translated by the English word of or the English word from. There is a distinction that may be made between these two renditions. Both renditions, of course, call attention to a profound truth about God. Everything is of God in the sense that it is ultimately His. It is His possession. We remember that in the very first chapter of Romans, we saw that when Paul introduced himself as the author of this epistle, he talked about his credential as an apostle having been set apart by the grace of God to and for the gospel of God. And if you remember way back when we started this study, I pointed out that the words there, the gospel of God, do not mean the good news about God, but that it was a possessive genitive meaning that it was God's gospel, that what we have been studying throughout our uh, uh, attention to Romans is God's message. It, he is its source. He is its author. But now Paul is expanding that, that God is not simply the owner of the gospel. He's not simply the owner of this world, but that He owns everything in it. The cattle on a thousand hills are His, and the rest of the cattle as well. And we could add to that the sheep and the donkeys, the camels, automobiles, homes, and the whole of creation. This is our Father's world. But beyond this simple and basic point that the Bible asserts everywhere, seems pretty good to me, Jerry. Nice and cool. Now, at least up here, I hope you're not freezing out there. <clears throat> but beyond this obvious element of God's ownership of all things, we also see that as the owner, He is the source of everything. Now, in what does that consist? Well, of course, the very first affirmation about God in Genesis 1 is that He is the source of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, this preposition here calls attention to God as the source of creation and everything in it. Before I expand on that, I'd like to look at a couple of very important cross-references to this same theme, one at least of which I'm sure you're very familiar with. When we go back to the first chapter of John's gospel, to the prologue, John begins his gospel with these words, "'In the beginning was the Word,' And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, here it comes. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. And then if we come back down to, uh, uh, to verse uh, uh, 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Here, John introduces uh, the Logos, or the second person of the Trinity, as the creative agent of the universe. This cosmic work of Jesus is expanded by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. The Colossians is so rich in the uh, affirmations of the dignity and glory of Christ. In Colossians uh, <coughs> chapter 1, we read in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, beloved, these passages in John and in Colossians, which amplify what the Apostle says so briefly here in chapter 11 of Romans, are staggering in their assertions about the function of Christ as the cosmic substance creator and author of all things, for whom all things are made, and in whom all things consist. Now let me pursue that a little bit more by looking at the ways in which God is the source of all things. The New Testament speaks of at least three distinct dimensions of human experience of which God is the source. The first is this, that God who is the source of all things is first of all the source of all truth. God is the source of all truth. Now we live in a time where theories of relativism have uh, become widely accepted. We remember in the latter days of the life of Francis Schaeffer, he used to speak about the death of true truth, not because he stuttered, but because what he was getting at is that the cultures, chiefly through the influence, first of all, of existential philosophy and later by pluralism and relativism, had undermined objective truth. And so when Schaefer spoke about true truth, he talked about truth that was beyond the preferences or the tastes of individual subjects. Kierkegaard used to teach that truth is subjectivity, which being taken up in the 20th century came to mean that truth is like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Something can be true for you and at the same time not be true for me. I've used the illustration elsewhere in this church 
about a young lady I had a discussion with once on a college campus about the existence of God. And she said, do you believe in God? I said, yes, I do. She said, do you find it meaningful to believe in God? I said, yes, I do. Do you pray to God? Yes. Do you sing hymns of praise to Him? Yes, I do. And that's meaningful to your existence. I said, that's right. She says, therefore, for you, God is true. But I don't believe in God. I don't pray to God, she said. I don't sing praises to God. And so for me, there is no God. I said, we're not talking about the same thing. I said, I'm talking about the existence of a being who, if he does not exist, all my faith in him, all my prayers to him, all my devotion and singing about him, none of these things individually or collectively have the power to conjure him up. And conversely, if this God of whom I'm speaking does exist, your unbelief, your disinterest, and even perhaps hostility towards him does not have the power to destroy him. I'm talking about objective truth. I'm talking about the nature of reality. If we would do a word study of the biblical concept of truth, aletheia, we read, for example, in uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, a lengthy entry on aletheia, which in the first place defines the biblical concept of truth as that which describes, listen, real states of affairs. Now, back in the 18th century, when philosophers were very much concerned about the science of epistemology, which is the science of how we know anything, they wrestled at great length with the whole question that was asked to Jesus by Pontius Pilate. You recall, during his trial, Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? I've mentioned to you before that one of the uh, disappointments in reading the printed word is that we don't get to see facial, facial expressions or hear inflections of tones of voice. Was Pilate being cynical? Was he saying, what's truth? Or for a moment was he taken in a pensive uh, moment of meditation where he's confronted by Jesus and kind of scratching his head and saying, well, what is truth? I don't know. But that's the question that philosophers through the ages have tried to answer and certainly came to a, a heightened uh, uh, intensity in the 18th century. And at that point, John Locke was famous for introducing what was called the correspondence theory of truth. Let me just take a second to define the correspondence theory of truth for you. Quite simply, as the term indicates, the correspondence theory of truth says this, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Very close to the New Testament definition of truth is that which describes 
real states of affairs as, as distinguished from fantasy, mirage, imagination, and so on. However, no sooner had Locke laid the groundworks for the definition of the correspondence of truth than the next generation of philosophers began to talk about the way in which our individual perceptions determine our understanding of what truth is. And so, the question was raised, if truth is that which corresponds to reality, what if my perception of reality is different from yours? I'm back to my discussion with the girl on the college campus. And so the Christian response to that is what? Truth is that which corresponds to reality as it is perceived by God. Let me say it again. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as it is perceived by God. Beloved, only God has a comprehensive knowledge of all reality. God knows reality in its absolute fullness. There is no nuance, no microscopic subatomic particle of the universe that is unknown to the mind of God. What He knows, He knows perfectly. What He knows, He knows eternally. What He knows, He knows comprehensively. What He knows, He knows exhaustively. And this one who knows all things without error is the source of all truth. That's why the battle for the Bible is so vital. That's why Christianity is founded upon the assertion and conviction that this book gives to us not the individual existential subjective insights of mortals, but it is the self-disclosure of truth that comes to us from the very fountainhead and source of all truth. God is the source of all truth, the standard of all truth, and that is what makes truth so sacred. When we're willing to play with the truth, when we're willing to allow truth to be slain in the streets in order to maintain relationships, we are striking a blow against the very nature and character of God. There is no possession that we have more precious, more valuable, more powerful than truth. Remember the great debate that took place in the 16th century between Martin Luther and the humanist philosopher Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. 
Rotterdam, Erasmus of Rotterdam, had written a diatribe strongly and vehemently attacking Luther, particularly with respect to Luther's understanding of the sovereignty of God and of election. And in his diatribe, Erasmus said this, On matters of this kind, of ultimate theological truth, I prefer to suspend judgment. I prefer not to make assertions. Well, just as Luther, when confronted by Satan, threw an inkwell at him, he reached for the same inkwell to throw against Erasmus. You read the blood dripping from the ink of Luther when he responds to Erasmus. He said, what did you say? You prefer not to make assertions? You call yourself a Christian? Don't you know that the making of assertions is at the very heart and center of the Christian faith? Spiritus skeptitus, or spiritus sanctus, non est skeptitus. The Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. And the things that he has revealed in his word are more certain than life itself. You see, because Luther knew where the source of truth was and how precious of that fountainhead and wellspring of all things true. But not only is God the source in the Bible of truth, but He is the source and standard of goodness. The ultimate norm, the norm above all norms and without norm for ethics and for righteousness is the character of God Himself. Frequently, we make distinctions between positive law and natural law, or even of biblical law. And the primary meaning of the term natural law in the textbooks is that reference to laws that can be extrapolated from a study of nature or a study of science. But there's another way in which theology speaks of natural law. And that is that law which proceeds ultimately from the nature of God. You see, how can we discern between that which is good and that which is evil? We look to the law of God to reveal to us the source of what is right, the source of what is evil. But the law of God is not some arbitrary legislation that God decides to impose upon His creatures. Rather, the law of God flows from His own being. In fact, we make a distinction in theology between the internal righteousness of God and the external righteousness of God. 
The external righteousness of God refers to what God does in His management of the universe. It refers to God's behavior in which it says there's no shadow of turning in Him, that His acts, that His works are altogether righteous. But the reason for the external righteousness of God is because the external righteousness of God flows out of the internal being of God. God does what is right because He is the source of all righteousness. And when God behaves in a righteous way, He's simply working out His own being, which is altogether righteous. He is the source of all that is good. He is the standard for all that is good. Pretty soon, the congregation will receive in the mail, sometime after our congregational meeting on the 11th of February, a brochure that I've written with respect to our hope for a future building. And there's a theme on the first page of that brochure, a theme that succinctly states the purpose for this campaign for beauty and for holiness. I didn't invent that theme. That's the theme that God gave to the people of Israel when He commanded that they build a house for Him, that that house would be built for His glory and only for His glory, and that that house would be built for holiness. And I think anything that we plan to do in this world, in our efforts, must be driven by those twin concerns for God's glory and for His holiness. We are told in the Old Testament to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. If you want to get an education that may rock your boat, Go through the Old Testament and look up every passage that refers to beauty. And we will see that the Bible teaches that God is not only the wellspring, the fountain, and the source of the true and of the good, but He is also the wellspring, the source, and the standard of the beautiful. Everything that is beautiful comes from Him. And everything that is beautiful in this world points back to Him. Even pagans, when they compose magnificent music or art, they may in their own hearts have no affection for God, but in spite of themselves, the fruit of their labor points to the author and the source and the fountain of everything beautiful. There's nothing virtuous in the ugly. But here Paul 
is exclaiming is that of him and from him are all things. And in our brief time tonight, I've just mentioned three things of which he's the source, the good, the true, and the beautiful. But we could expand that list far greatly if time permitted. Instead, if you'll allow me, I'll go to the next preposition. For of him and through him are all things. If we believe that one sentence, through him are all things, that would end the Arminian Calvinistic debate forever. Because this text speaks about the means by which God governs and orders His universe. That that word through has to do with means, with the instrument by which things come to pass. And Paul is simply reiterating here what he taught in Romans 8, that God in His providence exercises His sovereignty over, in, and through all things. All things that come to pass in this world ultimately come to pass through the sovereign agency of God Himself. We need to understand that. We need to embrace it. And we need to love it. Because that is the great joy of the Christian, to know that all things are in His hand and are being used by Him for His purposes, through His causal means, to bring to pass whatsoever He is pleased to bring to pass. There are no accidents in a universe governed by God in an ultimate sense. As I like to say, if God exists, sovereignty is an essential attribute of His very deity. And if there were one maverick molecule in this universe running loose outside the pale and the scope of God's sovereign control, God would not be sovereign. And if He were not sovereign, He would not be God. But when Paul comes to the end of his meditation on what God hath wrought through creation and through the redemption that He has brought to pass in and through Jesus Christ, after he sings this glorious doxology that we looked at last week, he sums it all up. For of Him and through Him, by His agency, by His means, are some things, are all things. And finally, the third preposition, 
for of him and through him and to him. That is that the word to here points to the purpose, to the end, where everything is moving. If I can end a sentence with a preposition, it's where everything is going to. Now, I know we have the conservative grammarians who won't allow us to end sentences with prepositions, and you recall the sage advice of Sir Winston Churchill when he observed on that uh, grammatical law, he said, that's one rule up with which I will not put. So where's everything going? Where are all things headed? What is the goal of all of the universe? What is the ultimate purpose of all of history? In a word, the answer is God. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the source, the beginning. He's the end. All things are moving in history and in the universe to fulfill the purpose of God. Now, there are many things that we observe every day. And we look at it and we say, how in the world could that possibly fit in with the purposes of God? There's so much evil, so much corruption, So many things that we say God cannot have anything to do with this. But over against all that is wicked, all that is corrupt, all that is fallen, stands a mighty God who orders all things together to His glory. One theologian said that this last verse of chapter 11 is Paul's version of the non nobis domini. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name be all the glory. Your destiny has been appointed by God from the foundation of the world for His glory. The destiny of nations, the destiny of history, the destiny of planets, the orbiting of the heavenly bodies have been created, designed, and ordained of God to be used to display His glory. That's why the psalmist looks at the stars and is overcome with awe when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His glory as well. And so, he says, for of Him, through Him, and to Him, are all things to whom? Now we have a pronoun. To whom? 
refers back to God. To whom be glory. Glory. Again, let me just give a brief excursus. I know you've heard me talk about this in the past. But that word for glory in the Bible is a glorious word. The word for glory, kavod or kabod, literally means God's weightiness, God's significance, God's value. Or as I mentioned indirectly this morning, God's august being and character. The glory of God refers to His singular transcendent dignity that no creature can possess in similar magnitude. God's glory is sui generis. It is in a class by itself. No creaturely thing is worthy to be compared with it. And when God, who shows forth this internal, weighty significance of His being, does it typically in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, by the outward manifestation of the Shekinah, the Shekinah cloud that is so brilliant in its refulgence, so excellent in its brilliance, that human beings must shield their eyes from it lest they would go blind. That is the outward manifestation of the eternal inward dignity of God. You know, one of the things I can ever, all I have to do is mention it in a sermon or refer to it in passing, and my wife immediately tears up when we look at the description of the new heavens and the new earth at the final chapters of the book of Revelation. When it talks about the holy city that comes down out of heaven, it is strangely described as a place where the sun doesn't shine. There aren't any candles. There's no moon. No artificial sources of light. You would think that any place like that would be a place that would be bathed in perpetual darkness. But what the author of the Revelation tells us is that there's no need of a sun or of artificial light in heaven because the glory of God and the radiance of His Son bathes the holy city in light 24 hours a day. The glow from the face of God illumines every inch of the kingdom of heaven. That is a manifestation of His glory. You know, when we're finished with the service tonight, one of the last things we'll do 
while most of us are in the parking lot, the deacons will stay behind, and they'll go about the sanctuary, and they'll extinguish all these candles. And they'll turn the lights out, because we don't need them anymore. And this room will be plunged into darkness, because even the light that we're enjoying in this room this evening, dear friends, is but for an hour or so. But the light of the glory of God is never extinguished. And the apostle says, to whom be glory forever. The glory of God is destined for eternity. It began in eternity and it continues for eternity. Every Sunday morning in our bulletins, we include on the cross on the front page the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and the final one, soli deo gloria. The reason for that is that when Paul finishes the unfolding of the doctrines of grace that he has expounded in Romans chapters 1 through 11, he concludes his doxology with sola deo gloria. To God alone the glory. Do you realize what kind of being we have to do with with God. Do you realize why the only appropriate response when we enter into His presence, when we come into worship before Him, is the response of reverence? A response of awe a response of humility, of a response of submission. I think the thing that drives me crazy about the contemporary church is the cavalier casualness that professing Christians display in worship. Have they no idea of Him with whom they have to do? where the angels themselves have to cover their eyes while they sing of His glory. The people of God are to be people of reverence and people of worship for our glory will come and go. But the glory of God endures forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how inadequate are we to plumb the depths and riches of who you are. To plumb the depths of what is revealed in these apparently insignificant 
simple and common prepositions that we are staggered in our imagination when we think that all things are of you and through you and for you. That in you we live. That if you, in you we move. That in you we have our being. That without you there is no life. Without thee there is only inertia. Without thee there is no possibility of existence. We thank you for who you are. Set our hearts aflame to love you not only for what you do for us, but we may love you and honor you and worship you for who you are and because you are worthy of our worship.